everybody. Thanks for the introduction and, and uh, everybody for turning up. And thank you, Jared, for yeah, thanks for inviting. Being me. willing to do this. <clears throat> um, yeah. So I think probably. Well, this is loud. Uh, I think probably the best place to start is to explain what this book is right. and how it came to be. And uh, I think you can probably do that better yeah. than I can. Yeah, let me try. So, um, so I have uh, uh, two earlier uh, collections of essays. The first one, which uh, uh, was the first book I published after my sixth novel, The Fortress of Solitude, was called The Disappointment Artist. And it was a, a kind of a cycle of um, personal reflections on like coming of age and uh, using cultural objects as a mirror for my adolescence for, for the period of time that was fictionalized uh, in Fortress of Solitude. In some ways, it was almost a, like, let me clear this up for you, because I'd been wandering the earth, being taken for the protagonist of that novel, and I, I, of course I was and I wasn't. And so the, the essays in The Disappointment Artist were my chance to say, well, actually, it was like this. Uh, you know, my mother died. She didn't run away, and my father doesn't paint film. He makes this other kind of weird paintings, and you know, and and I, I, yes, I listened to funk and soul when I was a kid, but actually, I also listened to a lot of you know David Bowie, and um, and spent a lot of time looking at you know Stanley Kubrick movies, which aren't mentioned in the novel at all. So it was a kind of a a behind the music uh, um, corrective to Fortress of Solitude, <laughs> and then um, and then. Ten years later, at least ten years later, I did this mammoth compendium called The Ecstasy of Influence, which was uh, openly modeled on Norman Mailer's advertisements for myself in that it was a kind of a uh, who-the-hell-have-I-become book. It was like all the stuff that people had asked me to do, all the weird assignments that I'd failed to say no to, and all these different things that had piled up that weren't my novels, and that I was suddenly looking at and, and trying to figure out, like, w how did I get so far off track? Why am I thought I was just a novelist, but here's all this other activity. And in a way, it's also puzzling over, you know, as Mailer did, puzzling over what the novelist's role in culture is. So it was another autobiographical compendium. And I worked uh, so hard making that thing work, come together, because it was gigantic and crazy and centrifugal. And um, so I wrote a lot of interstitial essays to, to glue it together. What that kind of left is the fact that I've been fairly diligently for more than 20 years now, um, you know, uh, playing the human of letters. I write introductions to a lot of people's books. Um, I especially like to, to be involved in rediscoveries or republications of writers that I think are kind of favorites of mine that have been lost or neglected. And I've agreed to review books, even though I'm ambivalent about that role. Maybe that's something we'll talk about. And so I had a lot of this, in a way, more traditional kind of bell-let, uh, you know, uh, writing on writers and writing on books. And um, Melville House and I got in this conversation about, well, there's all this other good stuff, and what about a, a book on writing? And I just threw up my hands. I said, I don't have the power or the will to organize it or figure out what's good and bad in there. And that's when this idea of... The, the book is um, 
really edited and organized and conceived from the ground up by another writer, a young novelist um, named Christopher Boucher. And Chris is uh, um, young enough to to have extra energy and to devote it to wading through this kind of mountain of different things that I, I, you know, threw off my hard drive and onto his and try to make some sense of it. And so he made the organization. He found the title and the sections, and he conceived how, it, how the book would work kind of rhythmically if he went through it from beginning to end. And I think he did a spectacular job. So that's this, that's this book, More Alive and Less Lonely. The title comes from, uh, it's a phrase that I used in a piece in the book uh, in talking about how it felt to be pen pals with Thomas Berger but it made me feel more alive and less lonely. But I would never have noticed that as a possible title uh, if my life depended on it. That was Chris, you know, who honed in on that. So that's a good example of how the book is, in a weird way, his as much as mine. So what was it like <clears throat> when you saw the final version of the book? Or how, how involved were you in he, its construction? He, he would, in a, at a, to a pleasant degree, not an overwhelming degree, he would run kind of uh, provisional organizational systems past me and and nominate like which pieces he thought were kind of working and which things should just be quietly forgotten. And I wasn't always, you know, I, I didn't reread all of this different material before th- throwing it his way because I didn't, well, I didn't care to. <laughs> and I, I didn't think that my opinion was, you know, once I allowed him to step in. I really wanted to know what he thought of it and not prejudice him about any of it. So there were things I thought were probably, you know, because I remembered being excited when I wrote them, I thought were pretty good, that he looked at, and rightly, it was just like, you wouldn't put this in hardcovers. It would just, they didn't date well. A lot of old book reviews don't uh, hold up as anything more than a, a, a piece of, of their moment, right? And then there were other things that he really liked and latched onto um, that I that surprised me that I didn't I didn't remember even writing particularly. They were just in the file, and even even just what he, you know the fact that he put the f- the first piece first. It was not a piece that I would have thought could mm. could lead anything off. Uh, I wouldn't have necessarily included it, and he saw it as giving a kind of a clarion cry that you know opened up the space of the book the way he wanted to so um but he would test this he would test this thinking uh you know send me basically versions of a contents page right and um then you know then when it came time to get a little more definite about it i started rereading the ones he'd he'd picked out and i didn't i didn't pull any back out but i did rewrite some at that point um, that he liked, you know, I guess better than I did, or just the the prose. There was something really irritating about the guy who'd written them, and I just had a chance to to repair his mistakes. And so I did some rewriting at that point. When you include a handful of new inserts, right? just a handful. There's a like handful. three or four places where I wrote a little update to to some situation that's being described. You know, it's mostly to do with places where. It's not just me in the book, but I'm writing about some personal encounter with the writer in question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Thomas Berger, there were already three pieces about Thomas Berger in the book, and after I'd written those, I had a very interesting turn in my personal relationship with him, um, which I can explain. I'll, I'll 
we can footnote that, and I can I can get into that because it's a pretty cool story. Um, so I wrote a kind of afterward to the burger cycle to say, and then this, and you know I had this major second thought about a, a, a review I'd written of of a Ishiguro novel, and it was partly to do with that I'd met him and asked him a question, and it had made my whole piece look stupid. <laughs> So I wrote about that because that seemed interesting, and uh, so so the, the the few pieces of new writing in there have to do with specifically with kind of uh, so. follow ups, right? Yeah. Um, so do you when you describe the first two books, they both seem to be correctives, for lack of a better <laughs> word. Is this a corrective? Well, yeah, I, it's an it's like a a, a kind of normative writer's <laughs> book, right? I mean, it's 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 like the kind of book that a lot of British novelists drag into print, you know, my collected reviews or something. You know, it, it sounds really pathetic, and I, I actually, I've, I'm quite excited about this book. But the other two <laughs> essay collections are, um, are they're, they arise, you're right, they arise from out of, from a kind of personal torment in a way, like a novel does, and they're, they're, they're in this, like, argument about self and world, whereas this is really an account of, hey, I've been like a, like I say, a human of letters for a while now, and I, I think some of my uh, writings in that mode are, are pretty good, and, uh, and this, this young man is going to tell you that they're, they're extraordinary, and that's great. So it's, you know, it's different in that way, but it's really odd, you know, it's funny, because it, 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 you could say it's the most conventional of the three books of essays, but on the other hand, it's really weird to have someone edit uh, you know, I'm not even an old writer. I'm a middle-aged writer. Usually this is done for dead people. Right. So the fact that he intervened on my behalf makes it, again, a kind of unusual book. Right. Well, and I mean, I think that probably speaks to something that I think has been running throughout your public face uh, for the duration that it's been there, which you are very much a writer concerned with other writers. And this, and I, I have a theory actually that this is what saved you, and that this is uh, yeah, I think it has saved that me. this is this is why you're not really terrible in a way that <laughs> only you, somewhat terrible. Well, no, but you're not actually you're not terrible no, at thank, all. Thank um, but no, there, there's a thing that happens to writers uh, in the U.S. in particular who get to the level of achievement that you've gotten to where the thing that becomes the most interesting to them is the image in the mirror. And yeah. you can see it infecting their books. And I don't think that's happened with you. And I also think it's because you've always been there writing about other people. I mean, I remember when I first heard about you, it was directly in relationship to Philip K. Dick. Yeah. Um, who, you know... You, that's its own very long it's a, story. It's a huge chapter, of, right. right? In my in the life of my attention is just uh, following that that guy and his posthumous career around for sure. Yeah. yeah, and I think I think that's what probably would make this book different than the uh, posthumous collection of an English novelist uh, writing snide reviews for the time, yeah. the Times rather, um, is that you have a very different relationship to this stuff. Well, I I mean I. If I could supply the word, it's a fanish book. Right. It's a it's a book of uh, unrepentant, uh, you know, uh, enthusiasms and uh, kind of permanent um, amateur status. You know, when I'm asked to review or 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 to present another person's book by writing an introduction or something to it, I don't 
I don't think I come at it like uh, from a pedestal or pro- professorial kind of mm-hmm. stance. It's more sort of like, wow, how do I find myself here each time? And 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 the answer is that I must have been gushing about this person's work in some interview or something, which is why they knew to ask me to write the introduction. And so I guess I'll just say, you know, why I'm why I'm fascinated by them, you know, and try to work it out in front of you. So it's it's fanish writing in that sense. Right. Yeah. So that, I think that leads into a question, which is how have you maintained your enthusiasm? <laughs> because I, the more that I'm around publishing, the less that I want to be around books. Um, and you have been around publishing in a way that very few people get the opportunity to, and you seem to be able to maintain yeah. an enthusiasm indefinitely. Well, I've been published a lot, so that's a way of being around publishing. But I have a, a precursor relationship to books, which is I was um, a, a bookseller, but not a new bookseller. Mm-hmm. I worked in used bookstores a lot. And that still, to me, is the place that I go to to restore my orientation, you know, I guess, or, and enthusiasm, is thinking that books and publishing are two very different right. things. And, um, in fact, booksellers of the kind that I aligned myself with, you know, the kind of old grumpy men in New York who would, like, basically tolerate me being in their shop, sweeping up the, you know, the the, the, the chewing gum wrappers and the, you know, spent cigar uh, butts uh, in return for my going out with armloads of old books that, you know, probably no one wanted anyway. Um, this world was a realm of people who were sure that they knew uh what what mattered much more than a publisher did hmm. people who were aficionados book hounds collectors uh readers of secret literatures of various kinds you know always having some kind of uh you know i mean in a way it's like obnoxious you know record store clerks or something <laughs> who always have a cooler record oh you will, you like that one well actually this ep was much better but this ethos of like personalizing it through this you know consuming passionate hunger for it where the out of print and the obscure and the arcane is you know probably where the action is mm-hmm. just made me it inoculated me i guess against um what i encountered in publishing right and you know one of the funny things is i i you know you, you work in used bookstores you understand that these books have this crazy life cycle. You know, they're like, are this this moment? I mean, this is a great store, and some things stay here a long time, and it, it represents a nice, relatively layered view of, uh, of of you know of of literature or the life of the mind. Most used bookstores are like, you know, it's like an infomercial. It's just like a front with nothing behind it. It's just the stuff that's on the front tables, and then will get returned, and then. There's this enormous sorting that goes on where people respond to a book and it has this life and it is a paperback and people talk about it. The hardcover becomes this uh, embarrassing, dingy object for a while. I mean, I remember when I was a kid going into a, a, a Barnes & Noble in uh, Manhattan. And this is, I should say, Barnes & Noble was a store then that specialized in remainders, but it wasn't just a big chain in malls. It was a really special kind of store that 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 was a, had depths and you could explore it but they also had these remainders that were like the problem books like somebody returned 
10,000 copies of something and they were just going to stack them up and they were books for a buck. And I remember seeing Don DeLillo's, first editions of Don DeLillo's, uh, the names stacked up as a book for a buck at the Barnes & Noble in Manhattan. Now that's, you know, one of the great novels of the post-war American canon. And also now a nice collectible first edition. But at that moment, it was in this like place in its life as an object that was just, uh, it was just like, maybe they would give you a dollar if you took them all away. It was so, it was such a problem. It was just, a, it was just a, a, a failed artifact. Uh, but that's only a moment in its life cycle. And then it would trickle into used bookstores and we might price it at five or six bucks. And then someone might notice that people were beginning to cotton on to how special it was. And someone would say, that's a first of a DeLillo. Let's send it upstairs and mark it at 50 bucks. And the next thing you know, someone's going to pay that 50 bucks because they can't find it. So I just saw this as this weird ecology. And I would, you know, most of what I loved most dearly, Philip K. Dick, to, to begin with, and Charles Williford uh, and Shirley Jackson was out of print when I fell in love with it. Whole careers just in the gutter. And uh, so I thought, uh, you know, my first thought was, how do I write a book that goes into that space right away? Because that's where things I cherish will live. And I took this joke to such an extreme that when my first novel was finally acquired by a New York publisher, I insisted that they paint a trump loy tattered paperback jacket on it so it would look like a used paperback book which resulted in people opening the cartons at certain bookstores and thinking it was damaged and returning it to the publisher. That's, that's a real thing that happened because I'd, I'd been so adamant that it should look like a used book. I didn't want to publish a new book. It seemed, it seemed obnoxious to me. Like I wanted to go straight into the you know, the dark horse, you know, dusty uh, arcana stratum. So uh, I guess it's by having this fixation right. on on that that I that you know what you call my enthusiasm has has thrived. The uh, my favorite piece in the book, which I think originally, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, appeared in the New Yorker as this amazing piece about you working in a used bookstore in Brooklyn, yeah, uh, and having Herbert Hunky come in trying to sell, uh, yeah copies of, was it Howell? Uh, it was actually Planet News. Okay. I can tell the story. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I worked at a little bookstore, one of several little bookstores I worked at in, in Brooklyn before I went off to college. Uh, it was called Clinton Street Books. It was a little walk down in Brooklyn Heights. Um, a couple of years after I worked there, it became a laundromat, which was true of a, about 15 different bookstores I worked at. That The next thing they were was a laundromat. And um, <laughs> The guy who worked there was absolute misanthrope, but he had a kind of a nice collection of, of, of you know, contemporary literature, and it was a store you could come in and spend a little money, and he was clinging to his existence there. And, um, but right around the corner in, in Brooklyn Heights was the bar, well, it wasn't a bar, it was a coffee shop. It was, like a, it was just really like a, a diner where Herbert Hunky was wasting his time bumming cigarettes and, you know... Uh, maybe occasionally still writing a poem. Hunky was a, uh, a kind of, not a minor figure in, in the Beat constellation, a minor writer perhaps, but he was the guy who dealt, you know, drugs to, to, to the Beats. He was, he, was their, he was their first junkie. He was their real junkie. You know, what William Burroughs was sort of 
uh, had airs of being. Hunky was the true quill, and they all treated him as this sort of demigod. But he was down and out, and at some point, out of mercy, knowing that Hunky had no means of support, Allen Ginsberg had taken a box of remainders of, of, of um, the... Um, the first edition of Planet News. It's the black and white, you know, uh, um, I'm forgetting the name of the bookstore that's also a publisher. City Lights, right. The black and white City Lights format. And he'd signed each and every one of them uh, to Herbert with Love Allen. Now, in bookselling, if you have an association copy from a major figure in, well, in, in 20th century literature and certainly in the Beat generation, one of the biggest people there could be, signed to another important person you know, that's an association copy. It's of great value. But it's assumed that there it, it would be a single copy. <laughs> and Hunky had, had a carton of these. And it's a slim book. So a carton of Planet News, all signed to Herbert with Love Allen, was like 70 books. And he was trying to find enough people who cared to sell these all because this was how he was living. And our store featured a, a, a copy of it. And Hunky would come in every other week and try to sell us another one. And my, my boss, the, the, the grousing bookseller, would say, you know, I think two of them is worth less than one because it's, it's it kind of, the game is up if you see there's two of them. We've got to sell one before we can sell. Herbert understood that he was waiting to see the one sell so he could sell us another copy. And eventually he got tired of waiting and he began coming in. I mean, I think he was stealing books from us anyway. And he'd have an overcoat and he would steal his own book back and then come back a couple of hours later and be like, it's sold! So he could go through, you know, recycle the copies because he wanted the, he, you know, he wanted to sell us more of what he, the only commodity he had then. And um, so I was put on hunky watch. I was like the, the, the little teenage policeman who had to follow him around the store and, you know, no, no, you know, anytime I saw him reaching for his own book, I would have to say, no, no, I see you. You know, I was like, I was, I was policing him. So that, that was that story. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a wonderful That saves you piece. now reading a couple of pages of this book. Oh, I think they should read it anyway. <laughs> it's, um, I remember when it was originally published, I read it, which gets me to something that was very strange for me reading this book, which is some of the older pieces I had actually read when they were originally published. Right, without paying attention. Without having no idea who wrote them. I, I know how that can work, because I never used to look at bylines at all yeah. until I was doing journalism, and then I was like, oh, a, 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 di- a particular person wrote this, as opposed to, like, the Village Voice wrote this. Or right, something. and so one of yeah. the, the piece where I realized that this had started to happen, because I'd sort of gotten that feeling off of a few of the pieces from Salon, is that there is a review you did for The Voice of Salman Rushdie's uh, The Ground Beneath Her Feet, right. which... His rock and roll novel. yeah. <laughs> And reading it was really strange because I remembered that review from when it was originally yeah. published. I remember seeing it in The Voice and being like... It's actually, it's one of the earlier <clears throat> yeah, uh, I think pieces in the book. I think it might be the earliest because yeah. uh, it's from that's, That would be an example of one where Chris surprised me by wanting it in the book. And at first, actually, that's maybe the closest I came to a veto because I just, I, f- I felt so uncomfortable in my skin when I wrote the piece. Um, but also, I, you know, when it was fresh, I felt embarrassed that I'd written a bad review of, of such a big guy. Right. And, of course, uh, 20 years later, he's had a lot more books, right. a lot more reviews, good and bad, and it just didn't seem important at all. My, you know, my, the vanity of thinking that I had, could have injured him with this, really, not even... <laughs> Devastating, just kind of mixed, you know, uh, 
review of them. Yeah, well, I remember reading it and, being like, and realizing that I just wouldn't read the book. Well, there you go. So you, you, uh, you effectively... I did my job. Yeah. But um, it's also one of the very few negative pieces they're not, in the book. They're not really uh, negative pieces in the book. I, you know, and I don't see this as a kind of an ethical situation. Uh, I've barely ever written a negative review and the, the Rushdie piece is, in a weird way, therefore quite exceptional, even though it's unexceptional in and of itself. But um, I'm not in a... I, I haven't a, agreed to, to any external authority that I am an arbiter with a kind of a... where my good faith as a reviewer... You know, I'm not in a daily or weekly reviewing seat. I have no obligation to write about things that don't turn me on. It just doesn't seem, you know, it's it's done by implication and omission. If I'm if I'm going to bother to spend part of my life thinking about books, it will be because something's in there for me. Mm-hmm. It just seems like a depraved way to spend your hours uh, writing negative reviews. I, I I I will leave it to others to to <laughs> to, to, to live that way. Uh, and it's not about thinking that all books deserve a pat on the head. It's about my just. Wanting to, you know, between me and myself, how I want to spend my time. How painful was it to re-encounter the older pieces? Well, some of them just um, needed needed to be um, slapped around a bit. Um, you know, I, I was very tight early on. It's mostly that they seem excessively formal and kind yeah, of they do, actually, puffy yeah. and pretentious or something. And so I tried to just walk them back from from my overcompensating you know I'm I'm an autodidact so I was an overcompensating autodidact actually when Chris asked me what I wanted to to title the collection I suggested that <laughs> and I you know I was influential enough that he suggested it to Melville House and they were like no 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 so then I came back and I said why don't you call it autocompensating overdidact <laughs> but you know so early on you can see me kind of trying to make up for that I have no college degree basically by using everything I learned good and bad and quite a lot bad from reading a lot of you know compendiums of like Anthony Burgess's collected press reviews you know and he wrote a lot of book reviews he was a great hack in that way but I was an adoring Anthony Burgess fan so I picked up those 500 page compendiums of his book reviews or you know or or something like John Updike's Hugging the Shore and I would just be like that is what it is to review a book and I will do it too now you know and I can I can get into this kind of slightly arch uh, style that is the, the commanding one so that's how the early pieces looked to me and I just did what I could to take them off their stilts basically I mean, they still have like stilt scars on their feet, but uh, but but they're not pretending to be so tall. How many reviews do you turn down? Uh, do, do you mean have I said that I? Yeah, no, I that like now and like a on like a day to day basis. Oh, I I mean, I don't really want to be in that situation sure. very often at all, and right. and so most of the places that ask have had the habit of asking me over time. Uh, no, to even only ask every once in a while because hmm. it just isn't. There's no point. So they'll wait until they have something that they think will really tempt me. I mean, the last... I, you know, I'm a little bit of a prima donna, I guess, in a sense, in terms of book reviews, that um, I, you know, I basically wait until they offer me, like, the new pension now. You know, that's the situation. And... Um, or sometimes they'll they'll 
try a curveball. They'll get me curious about a book about film or something. Right. Because um, I, you know, that that's that's fun sport for me. But um, I mean, you know, more recently I've written introductions much more than I've right. done any any reviewing. Right. I just finished a new introduction, which I'm going to stuff into the paperback edition of this, uh, for Anna Kavan's Ice. Oh, that's an amazing it's book. It's an incredible book. So that's, you know, to Who's me, publishing that's... publishing it? Uh, I can't remember what the imprint... It's a, it's a, it's a sub-imprint of Penguin. Huh. They're doing like a, uh, whatever it would be, 50th anniversary edition, or it's, it's, it's nice. It's got a forward and an afterward, and uh, I think they're, they're doing it right. You know, I mean, Ice has been a, one of those lurking kind of best-kept secret books for a long time, but maybe this will be its installation in a canon a little more. Um, well, good. I hope I, so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, she's amazing. Yeah. So for me, the, the writing of an introduction is still a little more like a, a living practice. I feel if I could just categorically say no to reviewing, I might, I might be done with it. Um, so do you have a lot of contact with people who you do review? After oh, the review Oh, you mean appear? like, have, yeah, have I... Uh, well, you know... One benefit of avoiding writing negative reviews is I don't have to like go to parties and <laughs> worry about that that moment. Um, I did get to know Rushdie later on, uh, and it never came up. If he, I mean, I, I doubt it was interesting to him that he got a mixed review in the Village Voice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's a really sweet guy. I know it, it, the the way he occupies space, you know, on like the internet and stuff is probably makes that seem surprising but in person he's a he's a very gentle soul um but i it's not an issue i mean i i did i wrote i wrote in the book about talking to ishiguru after writing that one review and i wanted to i was still so in love with my pet theory about his book that i wanted him to confirm or deny and then i of course had him just completely it wasn't even a denial he was just like it found it inexplicable he was like no that's very interesting but I, of course not you know it was just out of the quest the whole my whole thing that i projected onto his book was so utterly in my head and not in his at all so sure. it was a great moment of just uh humility and fascination because you know this that a book review is a, a meeting of two things it's the book and someone coming with all of their freight of sensibility and projections and expectations and pet theories you know so I mean, I try to write with where the, the reviews so that I'm at least making it seem possible that I know that. Uh, but I did really believe that he had secretly stuffed a whole uh, Batman theme into <laughs> when we were orphans, <laughs> just because there was a character named Grayson. <laughs> and he just didn't know what I was talking about. So the Batman stuff was all going on in, in, in me, which is okay. Yeah, well, it, for me, it's interesting because I sit here as someone who was reviewed by you in a uh, paragraph yeah. that you very kindly attached to <laughs> a review of something else entirely. What was it? Uh, part sub- submission by Wellbeck. Oh, right. Okay. And yeah. uh, it's interesting because you earlier you said you're you know you haven't set yourself up as a cultural arbiter. But I can tell you, having that paragraph, uh, you definitely are. Because in a way, it kind of destroyed my life. Um, The success, because, you know, I Hate the Internet is a give or take, but essentially a self-published book. And one of the things in self-publishing it was this idea that I had to hide that it was self-published at every 
Mm-hmm. Every yeah. interval, well, possibly. It's, it's supposed to be regarded as su- supremely shameful act, right? Exactly. Despite, and despite so, all the catalog <clears throat> of you know Gertrude Stein and everyone else who's participated in it, right? Um, and so, one of the things that I did was I begged Jonathan to blurb it, and he doesn't blurb books. Um, and so he then very, very kindly tacked a review onto. Uh, Welbeck's submission and um, yeah I mean it's astonishing the degree to which a hundred words can completely fuck up someone else's life yeah. mostly mostly I, for the best I mean but, uh, yeah. I'm, I'm honored to, yeah. to have been the one to, to, to f- fuck up your life that way but I, <laughs> I'll, 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 I'll differ slightly in that I think that you know it's not just this isn't just like a kind of bogus modesty dance I'm about to do, but that things have their fates. And, you know, I Hate the Internet was, in a way, fated to be... It was just like a a kind of perfect cultural gesture, or kind of like a hack, almost, that little book. And there was going to be some you know, uh, what's the word, like an envoy. Somebody was going to come and blow the little trumpet that just made it all possible for it to achieve its fate or enjoy its fate. And I happened to step into the stream and be the one who blew that little trumpet that just served as everyone's passport, you know, that said, uh, it's not your imagination, this is really cool. You know, (laughs) and if it hadn't been me, it would have been someone else because I think the book simply had that fate and I just participated in that. Well, I disagree. But I think, yeah. I think, and I think, you know, yeah. the, this book speaks to that a lot, which is the association, the sort of that fanish quality that you have means that when it did arrive, when that blurb with that review on the back of it, it was a genuine thing. Um, and I think so much of reviewing and writing about other books. Uh, writers writing about other writers and other other writers' books uh, often does not have that quality, well, and I think that the, that's well, probably thanks. the quality that you can find the most in this book is a real, genuine engagement uh, it's, with literature. You know, it is that, it, it's that like I, th- I think fandom is the is the best term for it. I think that in a world of commerce, you know the the weirdly the the um, style of, of you know remaining a permanent amateur or um, you know collector just these other roles become really important because they're they're not just uh, part of the machine they're sort of also inoculations against the machine mm-hmm. um, I hope so anyway but thank you for what you said yeah. um, should we open it up Why to questions take, from yeah, the audience yeah let's take questions absolutely and, and if it gets you know if, if no one has anything I'll tell Thomas Berger stories sure. so, till the, till the cows come home um so does anyone have any questions huh? hey how do you take reviews of your books oh you, you not read them? you get mad when you get a, a media well yeah i mean there are a lot of different i've i've gone through different phases so i i could account for my experience early and 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 more recently i used to read them very devotedly um but i also had the luxury of starting out really small i was a i was a dark horse author you know, for a while, and it seems like a long time ago, or like special pleading, like aren't you, aren't you, kind of, you know, didn't you win a big award and stuff? But I really, you know, my first four novels were published pretty quietly. I, I, I didn't get a review in the New York Times until my fifth book. 
and um, and there wasn't a publicity budget. So the only people that wrote about those early novels were doing so because they were fanish. They were excited and they'd found something that was kind of they thought was like a a a, 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 um, a stray that they could lead into the conversation. You know, I was being used constantly in that very typical rhetorical formulation of like, ignore the big thing that everyone's paying attention to. You should really pay attention to this little thing that no one's paying attention to. And I was always that little prop in in that. So I could read them with great uh, exuberance because I was, you know, only being celebrated. No one would trouble to knock me off my pedestal because I wasn't really on one. And, um, And then that changed and I experience the privileges and also the the you know more roughneck world of being you know having claims made for my work by my publisher and by some reviewers in in prominent places so other people wanted to immediately make those counterclaims or just you know I be, I, I I went from underrated to overrated overnight and then, then my my reviews became much less pleasurable to read because they also they stopped being written in the fanish spirit. They tended to be written in the spirit of like we are calibrating what's worth thinking about. You know, they started to have like an external concept in mind, and that that was uh, where do we place things and what's our pantheon and what's important to us. So the the books were being, in one sense, taken very seriously. And sometimes there'd be a very devoted and, and close reading, whether it was positive or negative. But a lot of times you realize uh, once you occupy a certain amount of cultural space, you're just being used as a token in people's ideas about what belongs in cultural space and, and, you know, uh, in what, you know, and whether we should turn it on its side or push it over here. And so I participated in those arguments too much for a while. And then I, 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 I've been slowly detoxing and just realizing I, I have no there's no obligation that I read them they're they're boring the reviews of my own books are really you know generally ultimately summaries of what is in the book and a thumbs up or a thumbs down that is mostly what what happens and it's wearisome you know it's not a kind of disingenuous thing to say you don't read your reviews you get bored out of reading them uh, mostly except of course if someone whose opinion is arresting to you. Uh, ways in, and then, and then, well, right. So I have my one episode. Right. Um, I made a, I made a, uh, partly because I was intoxicated with the spirit of Norman Mailer at that moment, and I was, I was putting together the ecstasy of influence. I was like, okay, wait, if you're Norman Mailer, you reply to a critic at some point. You know, what's the, what's the most egregious or frustrating encounter I've ever had with like the idea of like a major critical voice. And I addressed myself to James Wood to an eight-year-old review of Fortress of Solitude that still just, I was like, just bugged. I had a question that, that, that I wanted to pose about it. Um, which since, you know, none of you guys are like tweeting right now or anything, I'll just recapitulate the whole horrible episode. <laughs> he, he didn't give it a bad review. It was an interesting mixed review in some senses, but he didn't mention that there was a magic ring in the book or anything that was not uh, characteristic of what we think of as literary realism. He didn't talk about the flying or the invisibility ever in an 8,000-word <laughs> essay about that novel. And... I was just, in a way, I was like thunderstruck. I was like, that's bad faith. That book, whether you think it succeeds or fails, it has this giant 
thing in it. It's like I put my thumb in your eye of your realism and you just like walked right past as if I hadn't done so. Uh, it doesn't work to talk about the book without answering that question, whether you think that's okay or not or whether it, you know, uh, it, it, it's just right in the middle of things. So I tried to pose this question. But the fact is that that um, experience was a negative one for me. And the reason was that I wasn't alert enough to see that the power of the script it's, you know, in life there are scripts lying around. We are not totally autonomous. We are operating in a world where you pick up scripts and you read from them, you operate within them, and then the question is, like, can you give a good performance within that script? Like, I'm a college professor. I pick up that script when I walk into the classroom. And then it's like, am I going to, you know, be Olivier today or am I going to be, you know, Hal Holbrook? But um, the script of the author... The, the well-respected, you know, has lots of privileges, you know, celebrated author replying to a critic is a bad script. It's just toxic. It was a useless tr- thing to try to do. There's no good performance that can be given from within it. And I should have cottoned onto that before I picked up that script. I should have dropped it. Uh, but, you know, it was, you know, in, in a life of trying to, like, do every, every single thing an author can do at least once, I did, I did that. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks. Hey. How was it like the, the musical adaptation process? Oh, God, that was just um, sheer ecstasy for me. I was, I mean, it was really weird because it was uh, the most improbable project. I mean, when when The Fortress of Solitude was... Published. I should say, most of you might not even know what's being discussed. It was turned into a a, a giant uh, theatrical musical, two acts and lots of performers and a whole you know cast of of singers and and um, didn't get to Broadway. It stayed at the Public Theater, Joseph Papp's Theater downtown, but had a nice run there. Was extended and was you know just a fascinating moment to live through. When when the novel was published, it was option for film, and I, you know that was the primary conversation. And this weird other thing happened, which was that um, this theatrical director, uh, Daniel Auken, asked if he could try to develop it for a musical. And I was so amused, and I liked Daniel very much when I met him, that I just kind of fought for this strange right to be partitioned from the film rights, which is not usually done to allow them to try to make the musical. But everyone just thought it was a kind of an indulgence that, I, that I'd done so and was instead wanting to talk about who was going to direct the film. And, you know, come whatever it was, 15 years later, or uh, 12 years later, the film projects all died away, and this succeeded in happening. And I'm not a musical... Uh, I, don't, I don't see a lot of musical theater. I never did when I was younger. I mean, I literally, I think I saw... The Wiz and um, and Sweeney Todd as a kid. So it was not a form I knew anything about. Also, we would watch the movie of West Side Story on TV every year, uh, like like it was The Wizard of Oz. I like movie musicals, but I didn't even know what to. Th- you know, I couldn't make any contribution to this effort. Daniel and his uh, the the brilliant composer Michael Friedman, who made the 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 songs. You know, and and that really in a in a musical, it's the composer who's the central. Auteur. That's the real heart of the creative gesture. Um, they would come to me and they'd say, how's this? Or what if we did this to it? And I just was helpless. I, w- I, just, I just said, 
you guys are, are, are nice guys. Good luck, you know. And I'll come and look at it, but I have no help for you because I couldn't think on the terms of musical theater at all. So I was just in the, you know, speaking of fanishness, I was purely in the audience position with this thing. And then, and then it was being developed, and I saw a couple of, you know, uh, um, workshop versions of it, but nothing prepared me for the craziness of going to the public theater on opening night. And it suddenly had fu- full flower. It was costumes and a set, and these um, ridiculous, uh, brilliant, you know, uh, teenage performers pretending to be me and my friends on the block where I grew up, but singing. And I just it like destroyed me. I was weeping for the whole thing. So that was it. Was just a gift to me, you know. Even if the whole thing had been, if they'd closed up shop and never had a second performance, I'd been given this extraordinary uh, blessing. It was just uncanny. Yeah. Hi. Um. How is your self-critical eye to your own work? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. What do you think? Like, how do you see I oh that yeah. How is it now? Sort of. What's the evolution? Well. I don't, you know, I have to monkey with your question because in a way the idea of having a self-critical eye suggests that I read the books as as a person, as a reader would read them. And it's precisely the thing that I can't do. There's no room for that to occur. I, I, um, I have edited them thoroughly, I hope thoroughly, and gone over the proofs and the, you know, the, the galleys and I'm quite disgusted with them by the time I've read them, you know, basically read the whole book like five times over in the editorial process in a four or five or six month span. And then I never read them again. I just dream about what might, what it might be like as a reader, but I can't know. And, you know, um, I don't know how much time would have to pass before I could experience them that way, but I haven't even ever uh, really put myself in the position to try. So what I know about them, I know from listening to people talk about them. But when you're, like, working on them... Oh, yeah, well, they're all great when I'm working on them. You, you think they're great? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I have to be in love with it to, yeah. to do it. There's just no other way. You, you, you know, if, if the faith evaporates, you, you're broken. Um, you it's, this, but you're arbitrating a debate between. Oh, really? So I want to make sure you don't just make her win. <laughs> so a quick end. The question was about whether or not, because you just also said that you were disgusted with them. Well, yeah. I mean, the 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 problem of trying to fix them, you know, and perfect them, which famously is a you know hopeless. You don't aban- you, do, you you don't finish. You abandon a novel, right? So when you reach that point of tinkering, adjusting, trying to compensate this mistake against that mistake and make the whole illusion that it's perfect, uh, it is a disgusting moment because you, you walk away. You, you're, you abandon it. Um, but in the composition of the book, you have to, you have to be enchanted, you know, and, and in a sense, you know, be your own most uh, delirious reader, you know, what will these characters do next? And, and, and you know, what, what uh, brilliant turn of phrase will this implicit author named Jonathan Lethem uh, commandingly, you know, lay before me next? You have to kind of uh, be in love with, with the whole project and, and, and feel that it's, um, it's your best thing yet. And, and I, 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 I don't really know any other way to go about it. Um, I'm, writing, I'm writing one now that's the... Clearly, the best thing I've ever read. <laughs> hey, Will. Hey. Uh, so, at 
kind of as usual when I listen to you or read you, I have like a lot of questions in my head or ideas and I'm hazard being obnoxious. I'm going to lay four of them on you. <laughs> you can, you can uh, answer any one of them or what they do to you, but when, uh, when I first met you, uh, we were working in a bookstore together. Um, you, everybody was kind of jockeying, pushing books at each other, you know, it's your bona fides and it's like your hip quotients. And you were really strange because you were pushing stuff at me that was out of the canon, that was out of the normal beams of hip, like Bernard Wolf. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it wasn't just Bernard Wolf, you weren't like giving me limbo. You were giving me his obscure stuff mm -hmm. and giving him me his autobiography, and like there was this passion in like in in you championing him. I yeah. remember like clearly um, you you showing me his other books, and you always had this kind of like passion for the underdog, the loser, the forgotten, the marginal, which seems like for an ambitious novelist is an odd thing. So. One question is, where did that start? And mm -hmm. Then, um, I, when I was editor of Frisco, and your career was just starting, and, and I recommissioned an essay from you, and I was like a total asshole. I was out of my depth, and so I was compensating by being overbearing. And I remember editing your thing, and I put so many edits in it, you just like backed off and said, and I still remember you saying this, you know, Will, I deal with plots and novels and, and characters, I'll never be an essayist. <laughs> so the other question, too, is when did you decide to yeah. be? Um, and, you know, uh, in, in what you said about the clarion call, this little clarion call, mm -hmm. and you said, um, I, I didn't um, get a, a review in the New York Times for my fourth book, but I remember when your when gun with occasional music finally came out, and uh, I walked into Moe's, and it was a week that Kurt Cobain had killed himself, and you threw this newsweek yeah. thing, and you said, "Have you seen this?" And I was like, "Yeah, that's terrible, man. It's oh, uh, you know, uh, still grieving." And you and you're like, "Yeah, yeah, but but I I mean this." And then you flip to a half page review yeah. of gun with occasional music. But what you said was, my 15 minutes are ticking. <laughs> and I, I thought that was such an extraordinary line when you uttered it, that kind of humility. I mean, you're my pal and you have, and I realized first time sci-fi novelists don't get half-page raves in Newsweek. And I sensed it as a clarion call, even then, like you have a destiny. But your, your repost of it, this is 15 minutes, showed this kind of like overall, like almost wisdom about the mm. vicissitudes of up and downness and your next novel. You're already thinking, my next novel could get shit. <laughs> and this is like a kid. So, did you sense that as a clarion call? Did you, has there been a point in your career where you felt like the winds of destiny was in you as a writer? Well, I, there's different things. There's there's how you feel about, you, you know, uh, locating your own uh, capacities and and exploring them. And you know, I remember most vividly, and and I treasure the most, not 
feelings about my public reputation or my, you know, the, the odds of my kind of the project of me coming to something, which is just so, it's so pointless to calculate or quantify. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's really unattractive and also happens to not, it doesn't work. You can't do it. But what I remember and, and, and what matters to me is the feeling of, wait, I can do I can do more. I can do something else. You know, like when I when I was writing Motherless Brooklyn, I was really excited. I felt like I'd catalyzed my language in a different way. But I also, halfway through it, I'd written some things that were inklings in that book about my relationship to Brooklyn and growing up there and going to public school that that book couldn't be a container for. And I just could feel the presence of the Fortress of Solitude situated kind of just in a slot right behind Motherless Brooklyn. It made me write Motherless Brooklyn really fast because I was like, I'm going to actually, I'm going to blow my own mind with what I can do next. I just felt that. And that was a combination of, you know, that I put myself in that position through diligence and abiding with my own material and my own purposes. But also that just like, you know, you sometimes you get lucky, and, and I'd moved back to New York City at that time, and I was in a state of stimulation in relationship to the city streets, and you just want to like open that occasion as wide as you can, and make it, you know, live inside that, and that's you know, then if you're that can be more than fifteen minutes, that could you know that could be a lifetime of trying to find things inside your your relationship to the work that you hadn't. You know, you'd only barely tasted or glimpsed before. That just seems like the much more important feature of it. But yeah, I mean, I, I, the underdog stuff is probably partly just to do with growing up in such a particular, you know, multiple level exile. You know, my parents were disappointed radicals, you know, really communists. They didn't call it that. And New York City was you know, on its, it's really hard to remember just how bad things had gotten, but it was like a city that was understood to be like too bad about New York. It was once, that was once a kind of great place. Uh, and we were living in the the margin of the margin by living in this part of Brooklyn that was redlined. It was just, you know, it was not even, they wouldn't loan you money to, to, to buy a house there because they saw that as a bad bet. Uh, and, um, and, you know, and my father was an unfamous painter. So I saw the life of the arts up close as one of fundamentally, axiomatically, disappointment because your parents are, you know, they're the constellation that you live under. So, and then that was cool. I, I found out that I liked a lot of writing that no one cared about. So uh, I can orient myself in a probably a healthy, you know, it's like, Partly, like, you can't fire me, I quit. I'll be Bernard Wolf. Maybe some kid in a bookstore will, like, find me someday. That seemed really like a perfectly good way to approach my desire to be uh, a creator. So I think that's that's probably the answer to that. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I, I don't know how we're doing on time. I think I'd, we should probably do one more question. Yeah, okay. And then you can... Let's have this be <clears throat> one more. Do you always finish... And what's the most extraordinary thing that has happened to you in the process, during the process of the book? Does anything stick out? Um, okay. Do, well, I do always finish. That's the easy part of your question. I've never started a novel without bringing it to a, a completion, including uh, the one I wrote when I was 15 that's, you know, 
well, it's not even bad. It's just, it's written by a 15-year-old. And then the one that I wrote starting when I was 19 and finished when I was 22, which is actively bad. Uh, but I, and I, you know, I knew and I didn't know, but I definitely had to finish it uh, to, to deliver myself of what it was there to do and to teach me um, and to, you know, think about the hardest thing in the novel writing game, which is how do they end? And even making a bad one end is an accomplishment, <laughs> you know, because that's the really hard part. So I might as well practice it if I've gotten this far, you know. Um, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the, the difficult part of your question was, yeah, right. The most extraordinary thing that's happened to me in the, in the process, well, I did just describe that feeling of, kind of Fortress of Solitude announcing itself to me in the middle of writing Motherless Brooklyn. That was pretty special. But I don't know. Um, what, what, what could rival that? I mean, Chronic City came to me genuinely as a whole vision during a 48-hour walk in a, in a, um, on a, on a, uh, a rainforest trail in New Zealand. And it was like I could not stop uh, imagining a book about a giant tiger in Manhattan. And every part of it was just like a landscape illuminated as if by a strobe. And I just had to like look at all of it as quickly as I could before the strobe light closed. And then I just wrote it down. That was how I wrote that book, was I just wrote down that vision that was, you know, handed to me uh, in New Zealand. You know, uh, so that was the most Philip K. Dick-like experience, for sure. Um, yeah. Thank you for the questions and for all your attention so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you yeah, so much. Yeah, of course. <clears throat> Jonathan has some kind of baroque scheme involving signed books, <laughs> yeah, thank which you for he'll. Me. Yeah. So um, I, I just realized that I do not want to rush down to my basement because of nuclear war and not be able to get in because of all the remainders of my own first editions. That I really need that space for survival. So I've begun to bring the books out of the basement, and I have a, a I have them over here. A lot of. Um, of hardcovers of earlier books, mostly novels or short story collections, and I will give anyone who buys a, a More Alive and Less Lonely one of these books when we're signing. Okay, so there's a free extra uh, to be had um, if you if you you know do your job here and purchase the the, <laughs> the new product. Um, and uh, thank you again, Jared. Yeah, thanks for entertaining this with yeah. me. Yeah, thanks. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.